This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly exploring today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, John Rabe. John, great to see you today. Great to see you as always, Rob. I'm excited about today's program. I'm excited about the topic. I'm excited about the guest who we'll talk about here in just a moment, a friend and a mentor to to you and to all of us. But uh, 2023 marks a pretty important anniversary, and it's one that probably most people listening to us, watching us, aren't aware of, and that's the 100th anniversary of Jay Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. You think, a 100-year-old book? Who cares about a 100-year-old book? You and I would both agree, and our guest today would agree, and we're going to explain today why this is the case, but this is one of the most important books of the 20th century and one that I believe is absolutely as relevant today and as important today and as applicable today to the issues that the church is facing in a postmodern culture, in a neo-Marxist culture, uh, as important as any book that's been published uh, in the past couple of hundred years. Absolutely. With the rise of liberal Christianity in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, uh, one of the things that Machen wants to make very clear is that liberal Christianity is not just another brand or version of Christianity. It's an entirely different religion altogether. And, you know, when... uh, People started to read Machen, and he started to talk about, uh, you know, liberal Christianity. I'm sure a lot of people blew him off, but they didn't understand the fatal fruit that it would produce. It would be the demise of denominations, churches, and evangelical Christianity in North America as as a whole. Um, and I think it's incredibly timely uh, that we um, revisit this issue of liberal Christianity and its fatal fruits over the last uh, 100 years. It absolutely is that book that Jay Gresham Machen wrote. And by the way, I am pronouncing that correctly. We discovered from our good friend that uh, it's pronounced Gresham, even though it looks like Gresham. And Machen. Machen, Jay Gresham Machen. Gresham Machen. Uh, But the book is Christianity and Liberalism. This is the 100th anniversary in 2023. And Rob... The thing that strikes me about it, and you laid out well what the premise of the book is, is how we actually then saw that play out over the course of the 20th century. And we still continue to see it play out where liberal Christianity, today progressive Christianity, uses many of the same terms of as orthodox Christianity, but in, imports entirely different meanings, and you end up with these major denominational splits. We had it happen in the Southern Baptist Convention. We had uh, it in the Presbyterian yeah, Church. It, it happens over and over Absolutely. again because people aren't aware of the, the game that's being played, the play that's being run with this language. Machen saw it and still has much to say to us. Well, any time a movement attacks the authority of Scripture, uh, as liberal Christianity did when it rose in the early 20th century, 
um, you see the whole thing start to crumble. Right. I mean, the authority of God's word uh, was the centerpiece of the early church and the founding of the early church. It says that the followers of Christ devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yeah. It was the centerpiece for the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Sola Scriptura was the cry. Um, so once again, anytime the authority of Scripture is under attack, as it was 100 years ago and as it continues to be under attack today, you begin to see the whole um, uh, the whole demise of evangelical Christianity uh, throughout um, uh, North America. And, and nobody is better positioned to talk to us about that and about Christianity and liberalism and Jay Gress and Machen than today's guest. A absolutely. So we're joined today by Dr. Peter Lilbach. Uh, Machen went on to found, left Princeton uh, and went down the street, uh, down to Philadelphia to found Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Peter Lilbach is now the president of Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, a mentor of mine, a board member of this ministry, founder of Providence Forum, which uh, we have the privilege, uh, had the privilege of acquiring that ministry several years ago, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about Providence Forum later, but uh, Dr. Lilbach has uh, become an expert uh, on this topic of Christianity and liberalism and really what drove the founding uh, president of his seminary uh, of, that he now leads to write this book and why it was so important, not only in the 20th century, but why it's still important today in the 21st century. It's a great conversation. We This ministry has never had a better friend than Dr. Peter Lilbach, and he uh, will help us see today how this 100-year-old book is absolutely vital to our understanding today of what's happening yep. in, in modern evangelical Christianity. Absolutely. So without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Peter Lilbach. So today we're joined by Dr. Peter Lilbeck, uh, who is a friend of this ministry, is on the board of directors of Coral Ridge Ministries, and is also the president of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, Dr. Lilbeck, you are leading uh, one of the finest theological institutions um, in the nation and uh, have the privilege of carrying on an incredible legacy. Tell us a little bit about uh, the legacy legacy, the founding of Westminster Theological Seminary, its founder, and uh, why this work is so important to you. Well, uh, Dr. Pacienza, you almost sound like an alumnus. You have such glowing <laughs> yes. words about Westminster. <laughs> we oh. should point that out, by the way, for those who don't know. Uh, Pastor Rob Pacienza, just uh, a few months ago, a newly minted doctor from uh, with a doctorate of ministry from uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. What, what kind of a student was he, by the way, a, uh, Pete? A++. Plus plus plus. <laughs> Is that right? Awesome. Well, I appreciate that and appreciate the opportunity to be an alumnus. That's great. Well, the story of Westminster Seminary is inextricably bound together with our founder, uh, J. Gressa Machen. Machen was from a Southern-oriented family. His father was a successful attorney who operated in Baltimore. His mother was a very, very outstanding educator and trained a young, precocious scholar that went on to be uh, outstanding at Johns Hopkins University had the Presbyterian legacy within him, and so obviously ended up going on to Princeton Seminary. And while he was there, he was not sure he was called to ministry. He clearly was a brilliant linguist. In fact, the book that he wrote 100 years ago on New Testament Greek is still in print and used today, and people learn New Testament Greek from it. Mm. That's what a good scholar he was. But 
He went there and he began to want to do further work. He ended up going uh, to Marburg University in Germany. And while he was there, he studied under a liberal theologian by the name of Hermann. And he realized that Hermann was an extraordinarily pious man, a brilliant man, and a thoroughgoing liberal. And he started scratching his head and said, these people are really Christians. Mm -hmm. No, they love Jesus. And yet they're utterly liberal. And he said, I wonder if our tradition is right. And so Machen struggled in his heart with orthodoxy and liberalism. And he was not sure where he was going to come out. And he came back, and it was a few years later that he finally was ordained in the Presbyterian ministry. I think a key figure that maybe some of our listeners will know is a man named B.B. Uh, Warfield, Dr. Mm. Benjamin Breckenridge uh, Warfield. Princeton. Princeton theologian, to this day one of the greatest defenders of biblical inspiration and inerrancy. And uh, Machen, I think, was finally went over to a high view of Scripture. Continued to teach at Princeton. And when Warfield died, uh, it was fascinating that Machen said, the finest man I ever met has just died, and Princeton Seminary has just died. Wow. He felt like he was the bastion. But what was interesting, and it's hard to understand this, a little over 100 years ago, he gave a lecture, and that was in Chester, Pennsylvania, at a Presbytery meeting on Christianity or liberalism. Mm. He was now putting together his thinking on these two challenges. And he made a thesis that became part of his book, Christianity and Liberalism, that is now in its hundredth year of existence. It's finally out of uh, copyright protection. It's in the public domain. So if you want to publish it, you have every right to do it. Yeah. Ah, Westminster we'll keeps publishing it. You might want to make your own edition. <laughs> sure. Okay. But idea. so basically his fundamental thesis, this thesis has been said a time and time again by great theologians uh, such as... Uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, the, the presidents uh, of the great schools that are orthodox. Uh, what is that statement? Christianity and liberalism use exactly the same words, but they mean two different things. Mm. And therefore, if we're going to be honest, they are two different religions. Mm. Wow. That was an explosive statement. Wow. He was saying his fellow theologians who used words like the deity of Christ, the inspiration of the Bible, the resurrection, but they didn't believe anything historically. They were redefining them, but using all the classical words. He said, let's call a spade a spade. That's not Christianity. Mm. Liberalism is an alien religion to Christianity. It's a denial of it. Mm. Well, let me tell you, he now cut the Gordian knot. It was, this was explosive. And from that point on, when you have people say to you, is that a conservative or a liberal church, a biblical or a liberal? That's Machen. That's a footnote to his vocabulary. Right. He wrote that book, and his fundamental thesis then was put in print, and it created a controversy that ultimately led to his having to leave from Princeton by his own volition to start a new seminary. So let me just finish the story quickly. And basically what happened is, is he's writing this book, uh, and it's now his thesis is going out. There is another operation that's going on in the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church becomes known as the Auburn Affirmation. The Auburn Affirmation was done at Auburn, New York. That's where it gets its name. And basically it was on, we need to protect religious liberty. 
We need to respect academic freedom. We need to preserve unity. In other words, it was saying anything that's kind of dividing us up is automatically bad. And so that process of trying to say you need to be united was signed by many, I think over a thousand Presbyterian ministers eventually. And its upshot from the General Assembly was that every denominational seminary would have to have their board of directors representative of all theological views in the denomination, which meant that Princeton, that was the bastion of historic, reformed, confessional, biblical Christianity and orthodoxy, was now going to have liberals. And that's when Machen went to his colleagues and said, you know what? Princeton is over. Because it's only going to be a matter of a few years where the gospel will not be taught here, that there will be other viewpoints other than what we know to be the Reformed faith taught here. We've made it as well start a new school. That was 1929, the worst year to start anything as a nonprofit, the Great Depression. Depression. It's a miracle that Westminster is still in existence. But there they started, and about five faculty members from the old Princeton said, you're right, and he helped organize it. And being a bachelor from a Southern family with some substance, they were able to weather the storm of the Depression because he kept the school afloat. He made sure the students could come without tuition payments, and they were able to operate until the Lord called him home on January 1st, 1937. Wow. And uh, what, quite a story. Yeah. So we really, our main building, no surprise, on our campus is called Machen Hall. So Machen is fascinating history, founding Westminster Theological Seminary, um, and a lot of that because of the seminal work, as you just mentioned, uh, Christianity and liberalism. Uh, we're, we're now recording this podcast in the year 2023, and so that book was published in 1923. So we are celebrating 100 years of the book, that seminal work, Christianity and liberalism. I wonder if some listening to this podcast, when the, you hear liberalism in the 21st century, they could mean a whole host of things. Including political connotations. Exactly. What did it mean for Machen in 1923? Well, so first of all, Americans love liberty, and Machen was not afraid to be an American. He actually shows up at Congress debating issues like, should there be a Department of Education? He's in front of the congressional leadership. He was involved in political issues, speaking his conscience. Mm -hmm. He was grateful for religious liberty. In fact, one of the things his concern was, if there is a Department of Education, which eventually got established but was being debated way back then, he said the day will come where families will not be able to teach their children the things that they want to believe. They'll all be doing it for good reasons. We want the more unified country. We don't people being out of step. But at the end, their ability to preserve their conscience and their commitments will be taken away. It will be a tyrannical project. Well, lo and behold, we've seen the fruit of that, too. He was very prescient in what he was doing. So basically, what, what Machen was trying to do is to say, we want to preserve liberty. But liberalism, as he was using the word, meant we are free from the Bible, free from biblical authority, mm-hmm. free from confessions. It's almost like this is the Enlightenment. You may remember the words of Immanuel Kant, dare to know. Don't be bound by the past dogmas of the church or anyone else. Just use your reason, autonomous thought. Do what you think is right. Well, that would come into theology. And that kind of liberalism, I would use a modern equivalent, is like someone doing a spacewalk from the space shuttle saying, I really hate this tether. I'm cutting myself (laughs) off. Yeah. 
you are now free, yeah, free to are. float to your demise. <laughs> That's right. That's the kind of liberalism that Machen was opposed to. But on the other hand, there was another kind of liberalism he would have favored. And that is what we could call classical political liberalism, mm -hmm. which is the idea that, uh, Rob, you believe something, and I think you're utterly stupid for believing it. And I think I believe this, and you think I'm utterly stupid for believing it. We say he's got a right to be stupid, and so do I. So let's just debate. Yep. It wasn't a cancel culture. Civility. It wasn't trying to shut in. Yeah. That, that's classical. Civil culture. So it's amazing. Uh, American liberty, yes. Theological liberalism, no. Political liberalism, yeah, so for speech, so yes. theologically speaking, divorcing the church and Christianity from the authority of God's word. That's the liberalism really he the, opposed. Yeah, yeah, he opposed. And it, it's interesting. I remember him writing that Christianity is not simply a movement. It is a movement based on a message that is unchangeable. Amen. And um, that, that is something that we are grateful for his legacy of fighting against that. We certainly are. And it seems to me that it, it, we're going to talk a little bit about how what Machen was dealing with 100 years ago still applies today, uh, perhaps in a different guise, in a different costume. But one of the things that occurs to me as we look back at that time, too, is that perhaps not with everyone involved, but to some level, there is some deception that you see taking place. There is some, uh, you know, there's some funny business going on when we are knowingly taking words, using certain words, but in our, in our minds and our hearts behind closed doors, investing those words with new meaning when we equivocate that way, uh, a common word for that would be dishonesty, um, and and we see that boiling up again today. But uh, it's it's a reminder that the words that we use have to be defined. But tell me a little bit about the 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 sort of duplicity that was going on. Oh, we're all Christians here. We all you know we we all believe in biblical authority, and yet investing those sorts of phrases with entirely different meanings. Yes. Well, in in Machen's day. Uh, there had already been a, a more than a century of what we call higher criticism, mm -hmm. which is the view of you study the Bible, but you believe it to be a co composition of various sources stitched together for a common theme, and that doesn't have a, a holistic common message. And man-made. Man-made. Yeah. And yet it would be preached. It would be taught. This, well, this is because it's the legacy of the church. But what we do then, rather than teaching it as transcendent redemptive work, uh, following Schleiermacher, one of the great liberal theologians, it turns into our own inner piety, mm. which is I'm utterly committed to this message. And salvation is my loving my neighbor so much that I'll make sure he's not hungry. I'll make sure there's hospital care. Uh, those are all good things. Sure. But where's the cross? Well, the, the cross is just you're sacrificing to help other people. Sure. You're taking up your cross. It's an example. It's an example. It's an exemplary theory rather than a substitutionary atonement theory. Mm. You could talk about the cross all day. Talk about following Jesus, mm. having resurrection, which is a new beginning of life starting. But is it rising? Oh, don't. That's impossible. Virgin birth. Uh, uh, we can't talk about those. They're scientifically impossible. So it was a rejection of the supernatural using the classic biblical stories that were no longer believed to be revelatory, but just 
wonderful traditions that have value to inspire us to do good things. We read historically that uh, one of the motivations of the liberal theology, uh, liberal theologians of the early 20th century was relevance. Mm -hmm. Uh, They still wanted to have a seat at the table. Um, How is that same desire for relevance driving uh, the new progressive movement we're seeing in Christianity today? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and it would come this way. Clearly, the message that we're hearing from the media, from education, uh, from cross-cultural debates, from legal decisions is that classic Christian ethics are passe. Marriage no longer has anything to do with gender or biological sex. It's all to do with your choice in love. Well, you changed the word marriage. It was known what marriage was for, what, three or 4,000 years, I guess? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Suddenly we've said it's no longer—now we're using the word. It's changed. We believe in marriage, but now we change what it means. Uh, We believe in fidelity. Well, what does that mean? It means if I have a same-sex relationship, I'm going to be loyal to it. I believe in fidelity. So you see, it's the same classic words, totally redefined. And what's relevance? Well, once I make that move, I can be incompatible with the world. Mm. I don't have to bear a cross. I don't have to feel rejection. I don't have to struggle with cancel culture. I don't have to worry about what are they going to do to make my life miserable because I'm not in step with the authority of what man-made religion is. What we are challenged to do now is to move from a theological liberalism, I think, more to an anthropological liberalism. It's not about the doctrines of salvation in Christ. It's about who are you? Who am I? Mm-hmm. Well, I define who I am. Well, the Bible, no, I, I define who I am. I still call myself a male. I still call myself a female, but I redefine the words. Yeah. So we're, we're, it's it's an, so progressivism, which is the word we often hear, is the new form of the liberalism, or it's maybe not maybe not even fighting the issue of the deity of Christ, but they're saying we're fighting the ethics of the Bible, but we're doing it by using the same words and giving them new meaning. It's a clever thing. It's the same form. Is it deception? For some, it's not deception because they'll say, well, we just don't believe that anymore. For others that are on the edge of the evangelical reformed type world, mm-hmm. we say, well, we believe in marriage, but we're trying to change these things and quietly doing it. Wow. And this is where the, the rub ends up. In in Machen's time, the the rub with the culture was, mm-hmm. okay, well, in, in the wider culture, it's become a little bit uncomfortable to talk about virgin birth. It's become a little bit uncomfortable to talk about resurrection, inspiration of the Bible, the miraculous. Um, in today's culture, the the uncomfortable parts are the the sexual issues, the gender issues. Um, it's easy to talk about justice. It's easy to talk about love. It's difficult to talk about some of these other uh, some of these other flashpoint issues. So, uh, in that attempt for cultural relevance, don't you really just end up giving in to the culture on the areas that the debate burns the hottest? That's that's exactly going back to the Reformation battle. I mean that great. A battle hymn of the Reformation of Luther says, Let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. What we're saying is God's truth doesn't abide. Mm. And therefore, I don't have to lose my goods mm. or my life or my reputation or my place at the table. Well, that's the, the rejection that the world will bring on us. But how important is us to be faithful to Christ and his word as opposed to being accepted by the world. 
That's the tough question. And biblical Christianity has always said, the world may not like me, but I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow his word. It's the authority. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word preserves me and will be here forever. Yeah. You hear a lot of cries for justice these days uh, from all different types of people, from different ideologies and backgrounds. Uh, everybody wants justice. What is the danger of the evangelical church in the 21st century adopting the modern social justice movement that is divorced from biblical Christianity? Okay, well, it's interesting as you think about it, uh, the movement from theocentricity to anthropocentricity. Are we looking as God is the center or man is the center? And so who defines justice? Is it God or is it me? God does define justice quite well. That's what the Ten Commandments are. They are God's standard of justice. But social justice, at least they're hinting that we're using a different standard of justice here. We're bringing in a sociological concept, not a theological concept. But then they'll quickly drop the word social and still talk about justice. But what they're doing at this point, it says, we don't care what God thinks. If we need to divide people and create tension and create hatred and conflict to get our way, it's okay because the end justifies the means. That's really a Marxist ideology in Christian garb. I'm going to fight. Well, what does Jesus said? Love your enemy. Do overcome evil with good. Speak the truth in love. Uh, so love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what true justice is. Social justice is you have something. I don't have it. I don't think it's fair. I'm going to use the government or I'm going to use some other means of coercion to make you equal with me and me equal with you. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not, the Bible tells us if you have resources, you have a right to have property. Thou shalt not steal. It means preserve your neighbor's property. It says uh, six days you shall work. Well, am I, do I believe in labor so that I have a chance to get ahead? So what does historic Christianity said? Let's make sure everybody has a chance to be educated. They can read the Bible, to learn the ethics of doing what's right, and then be given the opportunity to show their labor will be rewarded. And if it's not, we'll fight it for them. And by that means, we overcome injustice in the world. And it pleases God. It blesses our neighbor. But the model that says, I will throw everything on its head and get what you have, that's a revolutionary, non-biblical model. And it has been absorbed by Christians under the rubric of social justice, and it's really a violation of God's justice. It's unbiblical justice. And that's the thing. Yeah, it is. Once again, it it just brings us back over and over to this crucial issue of definitions. Uh, Who's against justice? I'm not against justice. I know you're not against justice, Pete, or Rob's not against justice. But what do we mean by justice? It's the same uh, with love. Who's against love? But you hear love used as a slogan. Well, love is love. And we're not going to penalize somebody based on who they love. And, uh, you know, the idea now is that to love my neighbor means that I cannot at all be critical, that I cannot disagree, that I cannot tell them the truth, uh, that instead I have to go along with whatever delusion that they've adopted. Um, and, And so in in what way do Christians? What way should Christians get wiser about um, not being co-opted when it comes to biblical truths, but that are being misused in these ways by the the progressives? Okay. Well, there's several things that come to mind. First of all, when someone says love is love, 
you say, okay, that's kind of a tautology. That's just mm-hmm. an equal sign. But the Bible defines it this way. God is love. Mm-hmm. Okay, how does your view of love comport with God's will? What does God say about same-sex love? What does God say about unfaithfulness in marriage? Well, now wait a second. Oh, God is love. Are you letting God define love or are you defining God? Mm. How do we know? Well, the scriptures are our basis. So I think we have to go back to biblical authority, and we have a good source for that. Jesus, who was in fact the Son of God on earth, the Messiah, when he's tempted, and he could have said to the tempter, go away, don't you know I'm the Messiah? He says, it is written. So we don't miss the point. He says, it is written. And so we get the conclusion of the sermon, it is written. Mm. The Messiah brought us again and again back to biblical authority, and so that's how we should be. And he prayed as he's going to the cross, Father, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. And when people tell me that I'm going to define love by my love and ignore God and ignore his word, say, okay, yeah, you can do that. But please don't pretend to be a Christian. Identify here. You are basically an autonomous secularist who maybe wants to pretend you're a Christian, and you can't. That's right back to Machen. Let be, let's let the word be what it is. So I think as we get wiser about these things, we should say something like this. Social justice, okay, let us ask the question, what makes something social and what makes something just? Mm. Okay, let's define our terms. Super helpful. Yep. What is social? Well, my neighbor. You're my neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? The person who has a need. Mm-hmm. Well, Uh, What is justice? Justice is giving every man his due under the authority of God's word. So what do I, you're hungry. I need to help you get some food. You're being assaulted. I need to protect you. Uh, You want my money and not do anything for it except to steal it and use it on drugs? No, you should love your neighbors. You love yourself. I don't want you to destroy yourself and your family. And I want to protect what God's given me because in true love, I want to put it to work for Christ's kingdom. Now, am I being unloving? Well, by your definition, maybe, but at the end of the day, I would rather be under God's definition yes. than yours. Amen. And that's, that's, that's what we have to learn to do. Now, there's one other problem here, that once people begin to move with, into Marxist ideologies, which sometimes they're unwittingly doing mm-hmm. and not even knowing they're incorporating it with Christian language, they don't often consider the fact that they are uh, going to be brought into a approach to the world that's utterly inconsistent with the Christian ethics. The idea of, well, the end justifies the means. Well, everybody is going to be equal. What does the Bible say? There is a standard that is must be kept before you do something. There is something right and wrong. You just can't say, well, I'm going to get a good end. So, for example, I might say, well, you know what? You want to get to heaven, and life is hard, so I'll just kill you. Because you get to heaven quicker. Yeah, move it along. Move it along. <laughs> and I didn't murder. I just got you what you told me. You're a Christian. I got you to heaven. There's something fool. But that's exactly what's going on. It's a violation of, of understanding what biblical ethics is. Now, the problem with Marxism then is that it also does not live with principled arguments. It deals with ad hominem attacks. Now, what's ad hominem means? It means that I attack you for being you. I don't attack you for substance. Because if you're going for a revolution, it doesn't matter what you think or don't think. I just need to destroy you. You're my enemy. And so if you're dealing with a well-trained Marxist, there's no argument at the end of the day. Because they are going to cancel you, destroy you, 
marginalize you, defeat you, and conquer you because the revolution is what they're... So it doesn't matter whether it's the old Marxist revolution of Russia, which was economic, or the cultural revolution, which is control and power. It's all about marginalizing you, and we call it cancel culture. That's a Marxist strategy. Mm. Historic Christianity, going back to Machen again, says, okay, classical liberals, let's hear your argument. Yeah, we can disagree. Defend it. Yeah. And you hear me, attack me. Oh, it's okay. I don't like it. At the end of the day, who has that better? And what we're doing in that point is we're letting the audience hear the argument and make their judgment. And elevating them as you do it. That's right. But a Marxist doesn't want that. They don't want any other view than their own. Mm -hmm. And so when you have this kind of uh, social justice model with a Marxist ideology, the end justifies the means, which means I will silence my opponent any way I can. And if I have to attack him, accuse him, or keep him from coming, or silence him, shame him. That's all I have to do, because it's an ad hominem victory. I just need to get rid of my enemy so I can have my view conquer. So Christianity gave us political liberalism. Mm. It's loving your neighbors, you love yourself. So 100 years later, after Christianity and liberalism is published, we find ourselves in similar situations. In the 21st century, we see Orthodox historic Christianity being attacked, biblical truth is being assaulted. And a lot of well-meaning parents are sending their children off to universities, even some historically Christian universities that maybe over the last 10, 20, 30 years have drifted left theologically. What would your advice be to parents and grandparents listening as they are preparing to send their children maybe off to college or preparing to think about college? What are some of the things parents should be thinking about, listening for, and really preparing their child in the home? for their college experience? Well, I think that education in a Christian home should mean learning to show the model of speaking the truth in love, Mm -hmm. not being afraid to talk about any topic that's brought up, trying to bring biblical thinking to bear on it. If it's one of those painful subjects, you say, okay, you need, let's take some time, let's talk about it, let's try to think about it biblically. So we need to be training at home. So the values, Dr. Kennedy, I think you see the word uh, truth is more caught than taught sometimes. When you see a loving engagement and consideration and bringing biblical truth to bear, that's part of what we need to do. When you're looking at universities and colleges and other higher schools, I think the question you might want to ask is, what, what is the worldview that governs the school? Is it a uh, school that really takes a biblical world and life view seriously, or is it just something that's part of the ethos where all the ideologies are kind of uh, working in their different curricula? And that's a, that's a tough question. So I think it would be interesting if you're going to have a student who's studying political science and you're going to a university, say, okay, can I talk to one of the professors here? T- tell me, what is your understanding of, of what justice is? What is your understanding of what free speech means with political debate? And you say, well, I, I heard all that kind of wokeism, but I didn't hear anything. Then you need to think, are you ready to go into that? Or do you have armaments to get ready to take that on? Or do you want to? So you have to talk about it. If you go to a place that says, um, look, at, we have multiple viewpoints, but we allow free speech and you get, all views are heard. Well, at the end of the day, that's the best kind of university maybe to be at because it's saying there's not one view that's being taught and being silenced. So a very conservative school that won't let you hear the arguments for evolution and only teach you the Bible is actually giving you an inadequate education. You need to hear the weight of the argument and then engage it so that you're learning 
this is classical political liberalism applied to education. Are you really going to get educated or are you only going to get indoctrinated? And that can be true on the right and the left. In other words, I want to indoctrinate, but I also want my, my students, my congregants, my members of my seminary to say, I can argue all sides of the case, but I've grown to a commitment to biblical truth. And that's the healthiest education you can get. Yeah, that's great. It really is. And it seems that uh, when we look at, at where the church is at right now as well, uh, you know, relevance is one of those things that, again, is tricky. Uh, relevance is good if by it we mean applying the truth to individual lives. Relevance is dangerous if we mean it in the way that Christian liberals and progressive meant, uh, progressives meant it, which is we accommodate ourselves to the culture. The irony in all of it is that that seeking of relevance usually over the long term serves to make a church less relevant, more irrelevant. They lose their their relevance. So uh, seeking to accommodate the culture, it may be comfortable, but it, it waters down your church. It seems to me that Christians need to just be prepared to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to believe things that the world disagrees with. It's uncomfortable to believe things that the world gets angry with. But here we are, and without that, we have nothing to offer them. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I think it goes back, I mentioned the name uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher earlier. Mm -hmm. His classic book was uh, a book that was designed to address the culture despisers of religion. Mm -hmm. High culture despise it. Well, I've got to find a way. I've got to find a way to be relevant, to connect with you, bring you back in. Well, you know what? Uh, there's going to be a division in ideas and in commitments. And the goal is not to divide to divide, but to let the truth be the truth and seek to love people speaking the truth. And at the end of the day, not everyone will follow the biblical truth. And then we pray for them, we work for them uh, to, to understand our viewpoint. And so, but being relevant uh, is a goal that is not a biblical goal. It does not say you shall be relevant with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if loving God is out of step with my culture, I'm not going to be relevant. I might be hated. Jesus said they might hate you That's because right. they hated me first. What would we expect? Yeah. So we don't want... So I love what uh, Dr. James Boyce from Philadelphia, the Presbyterian scholar, clergyman said. He said, let your offense be the offense of the gospel not your personal That's offense. A good word. In other words, the goal is not to be ugly, <laughs> yeah. not to be have reverse cancel culture and say, we can't talk to you because you're too sinful. Let's have the dialogue. I mean, we ought to say, well, let's talk to atheists. Let's talk to evolutionists. Let's talk to same-sex people. And let's bring the case. Let's speak the truth in love. And at the end of the day, when we, we do that, we're saying we will be faithful even if we're irrelevant because what matters more than anything else is pleasing our God. Absolutely. Okay. And when we please God, it's amazing. Such little things have a way of changing the world and moving mountains. Right. You know, the little stone of a boy that is an image of Christ slaying the giant, uh, the mustard seed faith that becomes mount, that faith like a move a mountain. Mm -hmm. God will use stuff we might seem like we're marginalized, but from that will come God's purposes in his time. Yeah. That's our belief. What is it that overcomes the world? It doesn't say your relevance. Mm -hmm. It says it's your faith. 
And, you know, I love William Penn from Philadelphia. He was a Quaker, but he was trained in Reformed theology. But when he was converted by a street preacher, this was the sermon. There's a faith that overcomes the world, and there is a faith that's overcome by the world, yes. which is yours. My goodness, that, that preaches to this day. That sums it up right so, there. so relevant. Yeah. So, and I love what you said about the reason for why people should be offended. Yep. Um, let's make sure that we are heeding the words of Christ. He says, when they hate you on account of me. Yes. I, I look at some Christians, I say, they might hate you just because you're a jerk. <laughs> let's make sure when, when, when we offend people, we're offending them with the truth of the gospel. Amen for that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think our goal here is, uh, I, I mean, again, Francis, Schaefer, he was always on the cutting edge one way or the other. He, yeah. he, but he said, the key thing always is to speak the truth in love. Amen. And when you speak about painful issues, like same-sex issues, it should never be with uh, superiority or assault. It should be with tears in your eyes. These are weighty, painful things. So our compassion and love for people without losing sight of loving them enough with the truth Speak the truth in love. Lo truth is not unloving if you're not judging, but you're calling them to find God's hope. And that's their accountability. And our accountability is to make sure that they've heard this wonderful gift of the Lord and let the Holy Spirit do his work in his way. Absolutely. So Dr. Peter Lilbeck, uh, leading as president, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, founded by Machen, who were celebrating the 100th anniversary of Christianity and liberalism. They can get that on the online bookstore. That's at right. West what is that website? Uh, WTS. Uh, is has a bookstore, and I've forgotten precisely. You yeah. put me on. You, so let's go. WTSbooks.com. I think that's where it is. We'll see if now, I want to apologize to all my friends at Westminster, <laughs> but they all take care of ordering my books for me. So that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we can go to. I have to do it myself. So, <laughs> so let's go to WTSbookstore.com. WTSbooks.com. WTSbooks.com. Yep. And we can also go to WTS.edu to find out more about the <clears> seminary <throat> that you are leading. Um, let me just say, we are we are so grateful that you are a board member here at Coral Ridge it's Ministries. Honor. uh, Honored to partner with you in ministry, and thank you for continuing this great legacy. You're not only continuing mm. the legacy of Machen, but you're continuing the legacy of Old Princeton mm. and Westminster, oh. remaining <clears throat> steadfast to biblical truth and producing public theologians. And Praise grateful God. for your friendship, but grateful for your great work. Well, a couple things as we wrap up. We are just producing a full documentary on the history of the old Princeton to Westminster. Oh, cool. wow. And that should be coming out sometime in the next year. I, I hope you would maybe show that on a, some I, television program somewhere. Offer, love to. A, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, offer it. I think and, and we do have a 100th uh, anniversary edition of Christianity and Liberalism that's yep. coming out. It's forward is by Kevin DeYoung, who's a well-known oh, Christian PCA course. minister, theologian. And so the book is still in print, but Coral Ridge Ministry could publish their right. own version now. Right. So it's in the public domain. Excellent. Well, we'll get all those websites straightened out. We'll put That's them right. on the bottom thirds when this uh, <laughs> podcast is released. But Dr. Peter Lilbeck, thank you for joining us on the City of thank God you, podcast. Thank you, Dr. Pacienza. We're proud of another Westminster D-Men. Thank you, sir. God bless you. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of The City of God as we interview Dr. Peter Lilbach and this discussion on the 100th anniversary of Christianity and liberalism. If you enjoyed this episode and believe that friends and family members would enjoy it as well, please feel free to pass along this episode and all previous episodes of The City of God podcast along to them as we together pursue what it means to explore today's biggest cultural issues through the lens of God's infallible word. Thanks again for listening and may God richly bless you. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture.